This is your cue. <laughs> We've been waiting on bated breath. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to ask another question about sort of the same thing I asked before, but a little different. Um, this consciousness, this heart, Puru, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn uh, Sumedho's consciousness, and uh, I think you brought up like Vikunyanananda's uh, translation is non manifestive consciousness. Non manifestative. Yes, it is. I don't know if that's correct. But is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's his book. <coughs> those all referring to the same thing. And if they are, it, uh, how do we know that we've accessed this or tuned into this, that it's not just thought? Um, and also, <clears throat> It, it, uh, can it be grasped as not self? It seems a lot like self, like the Vedantin witness conscious or something like that. So is it conditioned or... I guess I'm trying to re <laughs> reconcile it with anatta. And... I guess that's it. Answer any of those. I <laughs> Well, there's a few there's a few things in there. Uh, um, well, the the term puru in Thai uh, can refer, and, and there's a couple of places where Ajahn Chah talks about this. And he said, you know, it can refer to anything from just the raw act of cognition, like just a, the any kind of mind, like a, a mosquito knows, ooh, smells good, eat. You know, <coughs> so that 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 would be, you know, mosquito is cognizing. Here's an edible body. All the way to the the uh, uh, the awareness of an awakened Buddha, Pur you know, the same term can refer to a whole huge spectrum, and uh, <coughs> so that in, in many respects you have to look at the context and when that word is being that term is being used, what's what's the context within which it's being used? So, uh, Ajahn Chah will say it can mean just like the one who cognizes, or it can be that full uh, awakened awareness. Um, Right, so but I was just qualifying okay. how the term is used a little bit. So the um, it's like a, there's a very useful uh, analogy that Lumpur Sumedho uh, uses about looking for your own eyes. So, uh, <coughs> so I'm looking for my eyes. Has anyone seen my eyes? I can't. I can't see them anywhere. <laughs> like, well, you know that they're there because you're seeing, but you can't make them into an object. So um, that. Uh, that's one useful image to bear in mind. So, so looking for the awareness is like looking for your own eyes. Right. Th you know, looking for awareness as an object. So, um, so one way I like to talk about that kind of awakened awareness, uh, uh, and I would say that when Ajahn Sumedha uses the word consciousness, uh, and the word uh, the terms are vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabatopabang, it's the same. It's talking about the same quality. Uh, I like to talk about it as subjectless and objectless awareness. 
which is even longer than non-manifestative, non <laughs> subjectless and objectless awareness. Because as long as there's a, a me who's being aware, as long as there's a witness, then there's still a degree of attachment there. So that, that I don't like you to use the term witnessing, or, or, or um, I don't even like to use the, the one who knows, or the watcher, because it gives this as a subtle kind of, of uh, identification that goes on. So there is witnessing, <coughs> but not a witness. And, uh, and so, so much of, uh, of the development of, of insight and, the, and the, the realization of anatta in particular is letting go of those subtle qualities of identification. So uh, in this respect, it's helpful to understand there's two different levels of I identification that, that the Buddha speaks about. <coughs> so the, the, in the, well, the first level, Sakaya Ditti, self-view, that's I am the body, I'm the personality, I'm a man, I'm English, I've got an American passport as well, I'm a monk, I'm Theravadan, my name is Ajahn Amaro, yada, yada, yada. That's self-view, is I am this body, I am this personality. So that's at the first level of, of realization, of stream entry, that's seen through. But then way down the line, you have what's called Azmi Mana, which is not broken through until Arahantship. And Azmi means I am, Mana is conceit. So the conceit of I am, Azmi Mana, that is the feeling of I, but not attached to any of the five khandhas. So there's this wonderful little description of uh, this elder monk called Kemaka, uh, Venerable Kemaka, and he says it's like a... F uh, he's talking about his own... His friends have said, you're about to die, you know, have you finished your work as a monk yet? And he's saying, well, it's like a flower. You can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't tell whether the fragrance comes from the, s the petals or the pollen or the stems or the stamen or where, but you can smell it. But so there's this feeling of I, but it's not attached to the body or the personality or feelings or memories, but it's still there's this I-ness. And he is notable in the fact that he became an arahant while he was hearing his own Dhamma talk. So you you can't he's unique in that he got he became an arahant hearing his own dhamma teaching. So can be done. Can be done. So <laughs> talking to yourself can be very profitable. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's a really good description of asmi mana. Like it's it's like there's no I <laughs> that you know the mind can be awake. Like it's you, and you realize well this isn't a person. It's not a man or a woman. It's not doesn't have any shape or form. It doesn't have any limit. But there's there's a this <laughs> that's the that, that's the, the that's the knower, and so that that's asmimana is that that experience of it's undefined, uh, you know, un, uh, unnamed. But it's there's this me the experiencer, even though it's not formed into a me as a human or a person or a man or a woman or a, you know, having an age or a nationality. So the um, I would say that. That um, uh, the the for anatta to really be seen, there needs to be that letting go of asmimana and seeing that that kind of conceit, conceiving of of an I, and as long as there is a subject um, being aware of an object, then that is still there's a there's a, a a witness a doer. So that's why I like to talk about rather than uh, in terms of, of developing insight, rather than being the knower or being the watcher or the silent witness, I, I like to use the term unentangled participating, <laughs> which is 
also quite. I'm, trying, I'm looking for a slightly shorter version. But <laughs> so, <coughs> uh, <coughs> so that is represents there's there's a lack of entanglement, lack of identification or attachment. But there's uh, and there's also but there's an engagement. It's not like some sort of abstracted recorder of data, but rather there's an involvement, but it's completely unentangled. There's a few things to work on. Maybe Joseph's got some comments to make. <coughs> the uh, tie, uh, which I, I like, is a beautiful place of reference, as I, as I quoted uh, Nagasena in his translation of the uh, of, uh, Venerable Buddha Dasa. And there's three aspects of, of, the, of the knowing that, that we you chant and translate in Thai, Puru Puta in Pubuk Ban. So Puru is just simply one who knows. Pu is person and uh, Ru is to know. Puta uh, uh, is awakening. So you can say Niang. You can knock on somebody's door, check, and are they awake yet? You know, the per meaning from sleep. And the last is kind of maybe the most beautiful Bug Ban. Bug Ban is like blossomed. It's like a, a flower. You know, bond it, it 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 opens and it blossoms, and so that's the the probably the best kind of English in the Thai translation of uh, of what Puru Puto and Pubuk Ban. Like another aspect <coughs> that is important to to keep in mind is that any intellectual exercise about figuring this out is not it, period, full stop. <laughs> now that's, that's how, I, how, I, how I see this. So, and this is with all due respect to Ajahn Amaro, but no matter how many words we can do, so we, we can talk around it, and that's the struggle, isn't it? It's because this is an, this is an experience, it's not a, it's not a it, it's, it, we can talk in, in conceptual forms, and because and, all we can use is our sense bases. You know, is it a person, place, or a thing? Can I smell it? Can I touch it? Taste it? Taste it? Touch it? Feel it? Think it? And 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 the answer, certainly from my uh, perspective, is no. We can talk about or point to it. So maybe the attributes, like I love what the Buddha, the Buddha speaks of himself as the Tathagata. As I understand it, either means one who has has come or gone. Yeah, can, it's a deliberately ambiguous. Ambiguous, yeah. But he doesn't. So he doesn't say, you know, the the Lord or the. He, he, that's a, maybe the most often ep epitaphic. Yeah, he that that's he, what he calls himself is the right, the Tathagata. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so we do have that that limitation of words. And so then the other part in my own and and I've. I've I've uh, taught this and and uh, practice it. That which has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing is a very simple, straightforward teaching. So in our sense experience, whatever we look at, feel, taste through the sense bases, does it have the nature of arising? If it has the nature of arising, then do you and I do I witness the nature of ceasing? So in that arising and ceasing, well, that's not it. You know all. All dhammas are are not all <coughs> created or uncreated are not self, and so our minds kind of like 
go into that lurch of like the finger pointing at the moon or the sound of one hand and all these things that, that really stop. And the point being is that we have to, to let go in a sense to experience. And so until then, there's this still this kind of drive to you know, what the experience is. So I think the, the, the chanting has some beautiful things. I, I love the Dhamma, the adjectives of Sanditiko, you know, apparent here and now, uh, Kaliko, so negates time. So we could also say eternal. I think that's mm -hmm. better than, you know, timeless, eternal. So what is apparent? What is eternal? Uh, in, encouraging investigation. I like the invitation, too. Like Ehibiku was inviting the, you know, people to come to go forth. And that Opanayiko leading, they said onwards at one point, but now they come back to inwards, mm -hmm. which I like much better. So leading inwards. And then Pachatang to be experienced individually by the wise. So those are not, they're not, uh, they're, they're a description of, but they're not actually it. It's the encouragement is that it's something kind of beyond what we would call normal in the kind of the sensory, you know, world. And so these are all wonderful uh, reflections to, to hold in there. And, uh, and so I love those things. And, and, it's, uh, I know Ajahn and, and Ajahn and Anupapasana did a book on, was it on Nibbana? What yes, was it? The Islands. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, actually read, I'm sorry, I know. I'm <laughs> uh, well, you, you know, you failed me. If it's all right. You, you <laughs> in all fairness, you know, there were a few little, fl just minor flaws in your younger day, but I never said anything about those. <laughs> Let's just call it we're even, okay? How's that? <laughs> but uh, but I, I, in, in all fairness and in all honesty, I am so encouraged to read more because I, you know, I do want to write. I've started writing. You know, stay tuned. Perhaps I don't want to set myself up too much. But but in my in my what little writing I've done. I realize that my reading is important, and so I'm very inspired by Ajahn Amaro and his his uh, um, incredible gift for being prolific and and reading and memory and everything. So it encourages me to not go to that extreme, but to find. <laughs> Wait till you read my was, memoirs. Was, was, Oh, this is not recorded, thank goodness. <laughs> what did I say? I don't remember what I did. We're going to have a little fun. Yeah. Well, it's very it's interesting what you were saying about uh, how you can't describe it, because uh, the Pali for that is yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the fact is always other than that. The fact is always, always other, than, other that. than that. Yena yeah. yena hi manyanti. Yeah. Whatever you conceive it to be, yeah. uh, it's always the fact is always other. Yeah. So basically, you can't name yeah. it. It's like trying to see your own eyes. Yeah. And uh, that's a wonderful analogy. You can't see your own eyes because I think I said that. If you look in the mirror, you can see a reflection, but I can't take my head, turn it around, and look at my head. You can look at my head. You can look at you can look at everybody else's. And others can look at yours, but you can't look at your own. And so that's a, I think it, it, the idea, and that's why I appreciate Zen. I think, and, and many of us probably do, because it takes you to that 
you know, why you get clobbered or whatever, whatever it is. And the final thing in the film, I think it was in uh, The Mindful Way. I think it was in The Mindful Way. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was in The Mindful Way. And uh, David, I forget David's last name, that did The Mindful Way came to Thailand. The, uh, the one that uh, was... Uh, David Thompson. Thompson, yeah, the director and everything. And I was around helping with that and had a, a few parts in that, in that film. But uh, my voice, I don't know if I was... Yeah, there was some... But I didn't get interviewed or anything. But he said, well, wh what about the skeletons? And there were two of them in the hall. And, you know, why do you, you know, have the skeletons? And, and he said, well, and then they, the subject of anatta came up, not self. And he said quite distinctly, the translation, they had the translation, but, you know, understand the Thai. So here he says, you know, you can't, you can't think about anatta or your head will explode. <laughs> so just that, that much is enough, really, if you're trying to think it out or trying to figure it out that it's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a, a lesson in futility, probably, just like Ajahn was saying and the other things. So uh, we could say a lot about it, but, but good, good, good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you. Yes, one from over here. Um, five precepts. I didn't really hear much about sequels, the order of the five. What I did hear is uh, the one about speaking is so important. Um, then why is it number four? <laughs> number one or the capstone? Does the sequence as it is handed down to us really matter? Is there anything, does it mean anything? Why they are in the order that they are? That's a good question. Uh, uh, sometimes in the I mean, the Buddha is a great list maker. He was—he uh, knew how um, to make things easy to remember, um, and uh, also he's fairly systematic in the way that he orders things. Once they've been put in a certain order, then he, he sticks to that. Uh, so, um, and often he starts off with uh, in a list like the most obvious things first, and he goes to the sort of the coarsest and the most obvious to the most refined. Um, so. Uh, the uh, uh, so in in respect to the five precepts, I think killing is like if you can just keep one precept, just number one, <laughs> just like, like because uh, in a way that the karma is weightiest, the respect for life for, uh, of other beings, and the 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 degree to which you love your own life and you fear death, that that's like the the weightiest karma is around that, and the most obvious and tangible. Uh, so, like you st with the five khandas, you start off with rupa khanda, <laughs> tangible, obvious, um, and uh, or with the f the brahma viharas, you start off with metta, loving kindness first, is the most sort of obvious and tangible quality of a kind of bright and beautiful mind state. So there's that. That is a general principle, but um, uh, the um, that's just sort of what immediately springs to mind. Sometimes it's just because someone's got to go through the door first. You know? <laughs> I don't know if Joseph has any insights into that. No, no. I, I, I was thinking how I'd answer it, and I, I, w I think that's a, a wonderful way because the uh, enough said. Well said, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there was a few other hands. Uh, yeah. 
the question is related to precept 3 and I was thinking uh, could the reflection on the 32 parts of the body be an antidote to manage cravings for sensual desires? Uh, yes, it very much can be. Uh, um, so that the um, it can be there as a counterpoint to the 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 habit of of attraction. I remember when I was a, s a small child, being surprised to, uh, when I understood that doctors open up people's bodies and uh, always sort of looking inside and fixing things. Uh, I was surprised to hear that doctors got married because I thought, well, they if they knew what was going on inside. And I grew up on a farm, so I know what sort of goes on inside animals, you know, because of chickens and, and such like you know, being opened up and. So I thought, well, if you've seen that, that in terms of people, well, you know, no doctor would ever get married because they wouldn't be. <laughs> I think I was only like five or six years old. It's like, well, I'm like, so, Mum, you know, do, do doctors get married? Because you know, they wouldn't, you know, if they knew that that's what was going on inside the other person, they're like, well, <laughs> why would you be interested in getting married to like all these sort of guts and livers and gizzards and whatnot? So, and so I got that look, like, um, yes, they do. <laughs> Somehow the mind does a sort of editorial trick that uh, when I'm in the surgery, then there's all this stuff inside, and when yeah, I'm in the living room, then it's a different story. But it's a very it's a very useful counterpoint. Any comments, Joseph? Um, I could say quite a bit actually, <laughs> but um, a couple of key things. Uh, the the first the first thought is <laughs> that when a uh, a uh, Male or female devotee goes forth. They're given the uh, their first uh, object of meditation, or the f uh, five uh, parts of the body, are kesa uh, loma naka danta tacho. So, head hair, body hair, uh, nails, teeth, and skin. Now, pause and think about that for a moment. As we're looking in this room, we identify with uh, male and female. Or we can distinguish fairly easily uh, clothes. And all of the rest of it, but what do we look at? So we look at, we look for hair. You know, what is the hair on the head? What is the perception on the hair of the head? We see the skin, and then we see body hair, beard, eyebrows, and so on. And uh, then we, you know, look at nails. You know, people paint their nails so they look a little more attractive to, you know, whatever they like painted nails. And, uh, and then we look at skin, or we look at teeth. Of course, teeth are a big thing. Uh, the big thing these days is whitening your teeth, isn't it? Heaven forbid to have any kind of discolored teeth. And he's he's uh, American. So yeah. <laughs> the English are famous for our, our wonky and discolored really? teeth. Really? I'm shocked. The Americans, they sneer at our, uh, yeah, our do they? Care, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe the dentistry. That's another subject. But <laughs> anyway, I hope there's no dentists in here. But the point being that, that and then skin is uh -huh. the final one, isn't it? We look at people's skin, so young, old, attractive, beautiful, not beautiful. And so there's an incredible amount of wisdom because that's the surface appearance, isn't it, that we see. But then the Buddha goes on to the 32 parts. So if we peel back, or hair is a good one. I mean, I love yeah, hair as much as the next part. I've been very proud of my because my dad cut it because he was a barber. And then the army cut it because I had to be a soldier, and then the Buddha cut it because I had to be—I was a monk. <coughs> so when I disrobed, I kind of thought it would just grow perfect. I have this really lovely ponytail that I didn't get to do in the hip for the hippie age, and it didn't turn out that way. And so I still kind of had bad hair days and stuff <laughs> to get it kind of somewhat what I like, and uh, or what I think maybe others like. But it's another 
kind of side uh, story. But when we peel it back, then we find the same thing. You know, you know if, a, if a person with dark skin, with light skin, anything in between, you just slightly score the skin or cut it, then red comes out. And then if you go further, you begin to you know, peel back the, uh, the layers. And this is a very powerful meditation. Um, the final thing I'll say about that, so as Ajahn was saying, and, and doctors have this, in fact, I remember Ajahn Chah talked about one of the doctors that I think was in the hospital, or that was taking care of him in the hospital, and one that he knew, and, and I don't know if he was, he was, maybe he was a gynecologist, and he was doing a, a hysterectomy. And, and he said that, that the, the doctor could do it on other patients, but he couldn't do it on his own wife. So that says a lot, doesn't it? Like the attachment to a body that you're very close to and you love. And I don't think it was as much of like, well, it's gross kind of thing, but you know, this is someone I love and it would be so hard to, you know, like your own child or something very, very difficult uh, to do. And certainly I found when I was young and, uh, you know, very uh, energetic, shall we say, uh, in monastic life, I would, uh, there was a big, the big thing in, in uh, when you went to Bangkok was to go over to Siriraj Hospital, the police hospital that was just across the uh, Chaprayya River from Tamasat University. So Tamasat was a famous university. And uh, monks could go uh, for, were invited in an open invitation to go and uh, see autopsies which was a big deal because you didn't you know, find that very often and to see, have that experience. It was a very incredible experience to, to have. But I remember <laughs> that and, and I kind of headed up some, some of the senior monks going and there's other stories, I won't take up time with that. But I can remember going over and you know, seeing an autopsy, different bodies, male, female, and opening up and, and seeing. But then I remember coming back across the river so to get to the boat, you had to walk through the market. So in the market, there was you know, boiled intestines and boiled livers and every, you know, pigs, mostly chickens. And a, so all these dead things were hanging there to consume, you know, which is kind of like, is an argument for those that are vegetarian or those that are you know, maybe <laughs> considering being a vegetarian. But then the real kicker was coming through the market and seeing all of that, and you had to come through and get on the bus, and it was Tamasat University. <laughs> and it was one of the prestigious universities, very popular. And of course, uh, the, uh, the young ladies that were in college wore these very, very short skirts. So no matter how hard I you know, restrained my eye and had seen all of these things, all I could see is like you know, pretty legs as I walked, you know, and I was like checking it out like you do. <laughs> But you know, in all my monkhood and 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 you know intention, I couldn't. I came through and all that, and I'm still seeing you know skirt legs and still seeing this, you know, kind of impulse. And the point being is that you know these anecdotes and things are good, but it's something deeper than like you know you, me, whoever. That there's beauty there, and we acknowledge the beauty. Like Ajahn Chah would say that that. We can see a beautiful snake, but the snake has poison. And so whether you're looking, whatever eyes you're looking through, or you're looking at male, female, doesn't really matter. If there's attractive there, and that's what you're choosing to see, it's going to be there. But then there is another side of it. So the encouragement is to see if we can find maybe a counterpoint or a balance to that. And 
to uh, for people to explore on those. Because it is a very powerful image for sure. As those of you have been in the medical profession or anything where you've seen, you know, body bodies, it really changes the whole um, whole perspective. So that's a whole other rich kind of or um, in depth topic. So I think enough said. I did have a uh, somebody wrote a question the other day because they were wondering whether we'd have another Q&A session. So I think maybe um, there's a few questions about mindfulness, which is a sort of mot du jour, the kind of theme of the day um, around the world. And so um, the first question, there's a few here. Sati is typically translated as remembrance in the books I've read. However, I cannot see the connection between remembrance and mindfulness related to the word sati. Perhaps the word remembrance is a literal translation that does not capture the spirit of what sati points to. Uh, so that, uh, well, the Sanskrit um, shmurti um, literally just means to remember, like remembering a fact or remembering the uh, today is Saturday. And when you have the, the Buddha giving descriptions in the, in, in the suttas, he says, you know, such a person has uh, sati ma, their, their mind is, is uh, uh, mindful, they're attentive, they remember uh, things said long ago in, in all their detail. So it's like it, it, it sort of characterizes, you know, being mindful is like you remember what's happened, that you're, you were paying attention and now you can recall it. So mm -hmm. deliberately goes to that quality of remembering, uh, just sort of remembering, okay, that was a conversation, that happened, and this was what was said, and that was what was said. So it does have a, a, um, a particular relationship to, to remembering, and so that the word recollection is often... Uh, like a more accurate uh, rendering of sati than mindfulness. It was Professor Rhys Davids the, the, uh, who founded the Pali Text Society. He was the first one to use the word mindfulness as an English translation of sati. So that, and um, there's a, I haven't read it myself recently, but there is a, um, some narrative by him about how he chose that or what to caused him to, to sort of settle on that. Of, and because it was not a, it's not a particularly common use of, of English. And so he looked at how it was used in the Bible or how it was used in sort of classically. And so he thought, well, that's the closest with the breadth of meanings that you get in the scriptures. But it does have a particular relationship to, to recollection. So that um, the way that mindfulness gets presented in sort of the, the press or the general um, sort of the popularization of it, it doesn't have so much that. It's more um, just the, you know, the act of attention. But it does have that, um, that remembering aspect to it. Um, then can you explain the difference between mindfulness and heedfulness? <laughs> so heedfulness is usually, um, the way it's presented is usually translating apamada. And in the, uh, uh, I think in, in some of the talks, or maybe in the last um, Q&A session, we're saying uh, Ajahn Chah was uh, he would describe sati as just the the way the mind takes hold of an object, and uh, you can use, he would use an image of like the sati is like the hand that sort of that picks up an object, and then sampajanya or clear comprehension is like the arm that moves the hand to the place where it's going to go, and then banya uh, wisdom is the the body that the arm and the hand are connected to because without a body an arm and a hand are not much use they don't have any life, <laughs> so wisdom is like the life source that's the so the the kind of root of, of that. From satipanya. From satipanya. And satisampajanya is mindfulness. It's usually translated as mindfulness and clear comprehension, but it's more to do with uh, mindfulness of a situation and the whole context rather than just a particular object. And it's also 
Uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho's the term uh, intuitive awareness is his translation of satisampajanya. <coughs> because comprehension tends to imply understanding things, you know, or or, like, or mindfulness of, and uh, full understanding or clear comprehension. And uh, so Lumpur Sumedho is thinking, well, you can be fully mindful and fully aware of something and not understand it at all. You, know, you can be aware of a mystery, mm-hmm. fully aware that you haven't got a clue what's going on. So he thought, yeah, comprehension, it just gives the, gives the wrong signal. So, you know, because you can f- know really well that you don't know. Mm-hmm. So he, but, so he, he latched onto using intuitive as an adjective mm-hmm. for that. Because it's, you can intuit something, you can have a feeling for something and not have a kind of full understanding. Mm-hmm. Just the, the tie briefly, and uh, is, is usually sati kwamlaluk, and then sampajanya ruro. So sampajanya is a cir- kind of circumspective, knowing around. Laluk is is like the ability to reflect or to you know remember reluctant, huh? reluctant, yeah, or remembering. So and those are very very helpful, especially sampajanya. And I think and some questions came up about the whole mindfulness um, movement, movement <laughs> for lack of a better term. That I don't know if that's always addressed and where. I think it's important, uh, the other part, certainly from a Buddhist perspective, of uh, sampajanya as well as mindfulness, because they're really used as a pair, uh-huh. uh, certainly as Ajahn Chah and I think how they're, they're taught. So. And then the heedfulness, so the, the apamada is always that, like mindfulness conjoined with wisdom. So apamada is like an alternative term for satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. So in that, fra- that very famous phrase, it's kind of the motto of Amravati, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, or heedfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death, the heedful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. So that was, uh, uh, back in the beginning days of Amravati, that was a, a verse that uh, Lumpur Samedha was quoting all the time. You know, many of the people here were around then. Uh, um, and so that's Apamada in that verse. Uh, so the... The the um, when you say the mindful never die, it doesn't mean that if you're paying attention to the present moment that you've realized the deathless. <laughs> but if there is satipanya, if there's true mindfulness and wisdom, if there's true like, heedfulness, like a full awareness, then at that moment the mind is not identified with with birth and death, with beginnings and endings. But is uh, there's a quality of of um, you know, full uh, awakened, awareness, like a non-entangled participating. So that's and that's generally how heedfulness, and it's within our community, how um, heedfulness and mindfulness are, are sort of distinguished from each other. So they're heedful. I mean, they're, they're in ordinary English, they can be used in different ways. You know, but that's how generally we use the terminology. Stephen had his hand up. Sometimes. Uh, <coughs> Sometimes when Anything with five precepts. It's <coughs> easy to kind of not pay much attention to them in everyday life. As an object of reflection, it's just something you do, you know, or something you don't do. <laughs> um, <coughs> but in, in that context of Hiroyoto being bright protectors, on this retreat I kind of acknowledge that maybe by not giving attention to it in terms of something to reflect upon once be here, for example. Um, I'm neglecting something. 
and I kind of wished I had a copy of, I forget exactly what Tikhonov calls it, I think, the Five Wonderful Pieces, mm -hmm. mm. yeah. where he expands upon the, not just the refrain from, but also what to do in response mm. to developing those qualities. Because I would like to have reflected upon that during this retreat from my daily life situation. And that brings to mind a really beautiful quote from the Buddha where he says, not only refrain from wholesome, do the wholesome, but also neglect neither. And I think that's pretty important. And I think it does happen, we have biases. Like I'm a precept biased person, so it's easy for me to re neglect the opportunities which can arise once you have developed that restraint to express it in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. um, you began to touch on it during our group meeting. You spoke of some of the positive qualities mm -hmm. that precepts do bring up and how they can be developed in everyday life. I wonder if you could expand on that a bit, particularly in the spirit of what Tikhonov is pointing to. Joseph, would you like to say something? Expand. Upon the positive qualities. The positive qualities. Which precepts develop, for example, the first precept, not just to not kill, but right. the right. compassion, the protection of life and so forth, and how these can be developed and reflected upon daily life. So it's not just, oh, it's just the five precepts. Right, right. I think in the, certainly the reading on the, the ancient quality unadulterated, and I think, you know, expand on that to, you know, from the, the Buddha's own words, but um, say the first precept in, you know, in, in the uh, respect of time, uh, <laughs> for me, in that precept, that it's the further development, and perhaps this is where I, I don't know if I've ever read, but I, you know, we'll go back and read Thich Nhat Hanh's expansion on that. Is that what is the opposite of you know malevolence, maliciousness, uh, harm, ill will, and of course we learned that anecdotes to that is uh, loving kindness and compassion, uh, so that uh, each of the precepts. Uh, digs deeper, or we can dig deeper and find deeper meaning and qualities that are positive qualities that are, are developed. So I think what Stephen, if I'm understanding, that there's, there's the kind of the, this is a, a boundary or a line uh, that is, is drawn, and by not crossing it, you know, we are protected, we're protecting ourselves certainly, but then perhaps the expansion is in, in protecting the world if I develop a heart of loving kindness, of compassion, of caring for uh, myself, and then expanding that by uh, just by uh, extension to other beings, then the first precepts became just not killing or not harming, but this incredible loving quality where we actually I gave the ex silly example of being on the the tube train with you know some you know a, a kind of somebody that hadn't brushed their teeth and their breath smells or something. But it doesn't matter what it is, that it's something that's either unattractive or we feel an aversion for whatever, that the heart can soften or does soften and, and begin to actually embrace and has been a, certainly a, a powerful one for me to start really meeting people as they are, who they are in a much bigger way uh, and giving them more space to be who they are and what they are rather than my image of what that should be. and so further breaking down the idea of self and the way I see the world or what I want the world to be and, and so on. So the 
I think each precept, one that we didn't, that didn't get uh, elaborated too much on, the second on uh, uh, stealing and taking things which is not given, which is a nice way to, to put it, and we practice that so much in monastic life. I mean, you ask for even if you can take a box of matches, our practice was that they're there for everybody's use, but you still, you go into the cupboard, I'm sure they still practice it, and you say, oh, venerable, you know, I'm taking a box of matches. So it's just, a, it's an extra, uh, it's not troublesome, and you're not even thinking you're stealing, but it's the idea there's always this openness. But then what is, why do you, co why do we covet, so covetousness, in other people's possessions, and I want that, and I have a right to have that, or they've got a lot of money, money they won't miss it, or whatever. But then what about, I always uh, thought, and struggled with sympathetic joy on Mudita. I think Mudita, to me, is more about a celebration of, of your goodness, of your success. So here you could take that precept and start to expand on, oh, I'm so happy. People say, I'm glad you got a new car, but you might be thinking, well, you know, <laughs> what they do to earn the car? Or, you know, I've seen some shady deals going on over there, and, you know, it's probably drug money. Or, <laughs> you know, how, how we can just twist it around and, and, and uh, make it less, less than. So each, each one uh, is, is, can be expanded further in that way. And I'm not sure, if Stephen, that's where you were, but that's certainly what comes to my mind in a more positive side of the... There's one little bit I forgot to throw into the question. <clears throat> in terms of the Kiriotva being the bright protectors, <laughs> in my own mind, it feels like, you know, when you, when you do neglect something, it doesn't develop, and it can slip in the direction of neglecting it. And it can be just because you feel been there, done that, got your T-shirt. Like been monk, five precepts, easy peasy, no big deal. <clears throat> but in terms of being a bright protector, it feels like unless one is putting some kind of attention and effort into this, um, then Hiriyotva isn't truly bright. It's just a protector, mm -hmm. but to give it its full brightness, mm -hmm. it has to develop in a positive way as well. Good point. Yeah. I think so. It's it's very it's a very interesting um, dialogue around this because uh, in the West, people when you present the five precepts, it's like I I undertake to refrain from doing this, not doing this, not doing this, and so people, particularly if you're in uh, California, where I was for 15, 20 years, <laughs> like well, that's really negative, Ajahn. You know, we should talk about what's the positive side, and, and um, so you know, Thich Nhat Hans, we have five wonderful precepts, and it talks about you. Know, not just um, killing, but cherishing life, and, and um, not just uh, refraining from stealing, but being generous, and, and, and it, he leads with the positive side uh, of each of the, of the precepts, in my, my recognition of it. So, uh, so there's this dialogue, and, and when I was living at Abhayagiri Monastery, well, Ajahn, should you kind of rephrase the, rephrase the precepts so that it's put in a more positive light, so it's not just sort of coming down like, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Uh, we're, we're quite traditionalists, so we stuck with the, our classical formula, but it was a part of the dialogue and also meeting a lot of, of, um, of the people out of the, the uh, community for mindful living, Thich Nhat Hanh's crowd, and, and, the, and the living in a sort of very um, uh, positivity-centered uh, San Francisco Bay Area community. So, that, uh, so anyway, I, I was very aware, aware of this dialogue and seeing you know, the benefits of just exactly what you're saying. And... And, but yet, um, we are sticking with the, the more classical um, uh, expression of, of the precepts, not just out of being conservative, 
but also a sense of well somehow it, there's there's a slightly different emphasis there and uh, I was at a conference on mindfulness <laughs> in San Francisco <laughs> just by chance uh, last year um, and there was a very interesting uh, presentation by this scientist called Clifford Saron and he's a, a psychology professor at uh, University of California in Davis and he's the main scientific researcher for Alan Wallace who some of you might have read his books and he's been very involved in um, he's, he was a Tibetan monk, a monk in the Tibetan tradition for a long time. He's very involved in scientific research on meditation and he's a kind of meditation science bridge. He's very involved in that. So Clifford Saron has done a lot of the scientific work for, for and leading uh, programs and researches for Alan Wallace's work. So he was giving this presentation at, uh, at this conference and he made a really interesting um, some, co some comments about work studies that have been done on this area. So uh, response restraint is remembered in a, a different part of the brain than response action. So to, s to be told, I will love all beings and be kind to them, that's held in a different part of the brain than I will not kill things. It's remembered in a different way, and it's held in a literally a different part of the brain. So they say. <laughs> Studies have shown. <laughs> uh, I mean, this fellow's a real sort of, he's a hard scientist, you know, laboratory statistics, the whole, the whole deal. So that was really interesting, and, and it's remembered um, more effectively by the response restraint um, uh, is m a more effective controller of behavior than response um, action. Like the, 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 then say, so to say, I will love all and be kind to all beings, that has a less powerful uh, effect on our conduct, what we actually do, than saying, I will not kill things. Hmm. Interesting. And so that... Um, that that was uh, 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 kind of, and he wasn't really saying it so much in terms of talking about the the precepts, but it's like all these little flags were going off. Like, well, that actually really informs that dialogue because I had that feeling of, yeah, to say, you know, I will be, I will be generous, I'll be kind, I'll be, I, I love all beings. It kind of felt it was a different part of the brain, you know. So it felt like it was a different area that it was touching, and so it was intriguing to see that, yeah, like in terms of neuro neurology, <laughs> it's a different piece. And also the fact that the behavior is changed more effectively through, through that, uh, uh, say, um, on the, uh, on the uh, development of the response restraint. So that the, if you're just told be kind or be generous or, or um, be, uh, be honest, that the way that those, those uh, affirming statements affect your behavior uh, are not so strong they don't make such a strong an impact as i won't lie or you know i uh, i won't steal and so that was uh, that uh, it was i mean there's just some experiments people have done in studies but it was it was intriguing to see that that was being borne out in the in the lab as well as that so it also um uh felt me gave me a you know, more uh, sense of confidence or feeling at home in in maintaining that, yeah, at front line, <laughs> the restraint, and then the backup is uh, I will practice loving kindness and generosity and uh, and so forth. Please, yes. You know, like, uh, the dialogue actually began, I don't know, I think it was the first evening, where there is no remorse, there is gladness of the heart and so forth, you know, this, uh, this uh, 
the saying of, of the pants, I think, came up. The, the, the liberation is a natural process. Yeah. And there is no remorse. Then, you know, it starts to go into silence, which is a very good base for meditation to understand. And it's very clear, you know. This is where we began, this whole dialogue mm -hmm. we had mm -hmm. here. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. I think. I think he was paying attention. He was paying attention. Yeah, you remember clearly what was said long ago. <laughs> Another ex-monk. <laughs> They're trained in my opinion. I can relate so much yes, to this. Yes. The income mm -hmm. of being free of remorse, of mm -hmm. having experienced so much anger in my life, and then suddenly overcoming mm. And the goodness, you know, the result of goodness. The effect on meditation is enormous. <laughs> Very good. Very interesting. Are we going to continue for a bit? Uh, it's ten past. So Why not? It's our last chance. There's uh, <coughs> patiently, yes, Paul. Oh, is it? We're both Paul. Oh, they're both Pauls. <laughs> Again, the two Pauls together. I remembered. Paul M behind. Not Paul L. Hi, Jan. Uh, one of the aspects of mind that I has caused me the most problems over the years, over the years is overthinking. Um, and I've got a joke to myself, I could overthink a shopping list. It's here, <laughs> might be. And um, so I was just curious to know. Well, brevity is not my strong <laughs> feature. But I would say you, you basically described it. Just recognize the habit and say, Paul, just walk. <laughs> Joseph, you let me... I mean, I, I like I was probably sharing with somebody, but I, I get incredible anxiety when I travel. And, and I think it comes to Sunday night not having my homework done for Monday morning from my schooling years, which I never <laughs> did. But more than that, the, the trauma, if you will, of not knowing how to ask for help. So I felt very alone. And so there's this, and I used to have the nightmares I had. I had nightmares about Vietnam, and I still do, but not in the, the way that probably people think of them, but that kind of... Um, theme of you know violence and, and and so on but some of the nightmares that I would would have a, 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 a repetitive one was not being prepared and there's this panic in the dream like in in, in 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 the school you know not being able to remember the combination to my locker to get the book that had the assignment to get to class and this kind of really compelling strong emotional uh, emotional things and so it, it is absolutely something that we can, uh, can work with. And I realized, too, in this, say, in this trip itself, uh, I started to think about other things like 
seeing it more like an expedition, like these people that climb Everest or these really serious kind of outings, they put a lot of time into preparation to do it because it's life and death situation. So a shopping list is not necessarily life and death, but finding it's a strength, see it as a strength rather than, or not see it as a strength. We tend to say, well, that's my strength. This is my weakness. Replace weakness of where I'm challenged. We say, well, they're te I'm technologically challenged or I'm, you know, whatever challenge. So you're challenged, but then if you're challenged, then you can, you know, massage it a bit and work with it. So you've made your list, you've checked it twice, kind of find out, you know, the rest of it. But that you can, can then can you put it down and say, Paul, it's good enough. You know, if I forget something, I forget, I'm not going to worry about it. And, and then, you know, put it aside. And then you can feel that compulsion to, like, well, if I covered everything, and then you go through the house again and look in every cupboard and all of that. So you're the best one that can help yourself, unless it's such a problem you feel you need, you know, some external help. Yeah. So that might, you might, you know, find that uh, helpful. And of course, those are into technology. There's plenty of apps, you know, that you can <laughs> use. I don't use, but, but I do find them, them helpful and, you know, certain, certain things. So uh, the resource is available, but there's nothing like a good old grocery list. And, you know, my wife is constantly giving me, like, you know, do today and do tomorrow. And you got a list of each other, but I, you know, well, I want to, like, do now or do second or do, do third, so prioritizing things. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, tricks. And, and somebody that seems very organized, talk to your friend, your neighbor, or whatever, that might <laughs> give you a few tips, so everybody has them. Yeah. Shauna. Um, coming from a Catholic background, as uh, she says in her strong Irish accent, um, I can't help but notice the parallels with the Ten Commandments. Obviously, they're pretty much the same. Um, the only one that doesn't have a basis in the Ten Commandments is the fifth precept. And that explains why Catholicism was so successful in Ireland. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for me, that, that would be the most difficult precept to keep. My favourite drink is a drink called Buckfast, which is actually made by monks. That's right, Buckfast yeah. Abbey, yeah. Uh, but um, what I want to say about, I suppose, your point that the, the most important thing about the fifth precept is that it can lead to breaking the other four. Yes. Heedlessness. Yeah, yeah. um, in law, we say that a drunken intent is still an intent, so that you couldn't possibly do anything while intoxicated unless there was some little note mm -hmm. of an intention there. So I couldn't murder someone if that wasn't within me. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, yeah, similarly, I'd like to have a drink and I think it wouldn't interfere the other precepts. This comes down to, I had an experience where I, uh, when I was younger, I was quite, I, I had a poor relationship with one of my sisters. And the first time that I told her I loved her was while intoxicated in Peru. In particular, uh, the Incas, I don't know, some kind of cactus juice. <laughs> uh, and th and th thereafter, I found it very easy to say and made a point of saying it to mm -hmm. all my siblings regularly. So for me, that was a, a breakthrough. Well, they do say in vino veritas. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the drink, there is the truth. You know, we sometimes we end up speaking the truth that we don't want to say when we're sober. So, uh, not to be giving a vote for alcohol, but uh, you know, there it's uh, like anything. There can uh, there can be um, benefits. Like it's a good anaesthetic. Back in back in the day, like um, 
when you you were away from the doctor or a, a friend of mine was on a, a beach in Cuba and she put her her knee out like her whole kneecap went out and she was like screaming agony and so um she uh <laughs> she just said give me the rum bottle <laughs> and took a, a kind of a, a solid chug of the this uh, rum from uh, her her partner and then said, okay <laughs> put the knee back in so it was like a local anesthetic, you know, an anesthetic that was immediately available because she was in such agony she didn't want to wait to go to the doctor's surgery. So you know, there are some times that uh, alcohol can have its its uh, benefits, but as a general principle, it's like uh, also I think Joseph was making the point. It's you know, I undertake the training. It's not like thou shalt not ever, but it's you, uh, when we we say the precept, I undertake the training. I undertake the precept to refrain from. So it's a training. It's like a, a guideline for yourself, and so that um, uh, the uh, it's not sort of making excuses, but it's also saying that it's it's guiding our moment-to-moment choices. And if you see that 99 times out of 100, when you've had a few fuckfasts, you end up saying things that are regrettable or, <laughs> or doing things that are regrettable. That yeah, okay, one time out of 100, it was something really, really good, but the other 99, <laughs> then. You let the statistics guide you. Say, okay, well, uh, that being the case, um, then uh, I'd better steer clear. The um, uh, <coughs> I do appreciate your um, your comment about um, Ireland. Uh, not that we should typecast the Irish as drinkers, but uh, in this this film that Joseph's been mentioning, uh, "Blue Eyes and Saffron Robes." It was a film that was made in the uh, early part of 1979 by a Catholic priest, Father Joe Dunn. And he was part of a group of, of priests that was, um, after Vatican II, was sent to film school to, um, uh, to do documentary films about other religions around the world and to educate Catholic people with about um, other world religions. And he just showed up at Wapananachar when Joseph was Ajahn Prabhakar and the abbot and I was a, a novice there. And uh, so at the very beginning of that film, and you'll excuse my bad Irish accent, it starts off with a, a, a film of some monks walking outside this temple in, in Bangkok. So like the first 30 seconds of, the, of this documentary is, um, yeah, <coughs> you know, so uh, in this film we will be looking at the way of life of the Buddhist monks. And in Buddhism, one of the main principles of Buddhist practice is a total abstinence from alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Like, okay, page one, paragraph one. Like, for his Irish audience, it's like a, it's from Rayak uh, on the Irish TV, so it's like, he knew his audience. So, okay, it got their attention, now we can have, the next 30 minutes will uh, we'll unfold from there. So, I thought it was quite, uh, quite uh, skillfully done. It was a very, uh, and we might, might possibly have a public showing of it. We've got a screen here. Oh, uh, conceivable there could be a viewing it is very funny it's quite beautiful I haven't seen it from start to finish yet. so uh, uh, but in, in that respect you know you, uh, I think it's you know I grew up in a drinking family I was given my own beer mug at the age of six by my, my father uh, with the, on the principle that he's got to start sometime <laughs> so I have an inch of beer every Sunday in my own beer mug <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah I'm familiar with the territory 
mm-hmm. and uh, and and also the, what uh, how uh, for myself you know, drinking when as a teenager like 15 16 17 it was you know you're drinking to enjoy and to have a good time by the time i was 19 20 i was drinking to stop feeling and I had a, 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 I didn't mention it the other night, but I, I had an epiphany here actually in Hemel Hempstead, strangely enough, at a friend's 21st birthday party. And I had sunk a, an entire bottle of teacher's whiskey. And I was about an inch, uh, inch and a half from the bottom. I drank this like a pint of whiskey. And, and I'm still, and I'm feeling like I've drunk a pint of whiskey and I still don't feel good. You know, it's like I still just feel like me. It's like I can't drink enough to get to that place where everything's good. Uh, then I had the, f- the thought, this is a waste of good scotch. <laughs> 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 but it was a powerful moment, you know, that uh, you drink a pint of whiskey and still just uh, life is not good. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and so then uh, that was a, a quite a turning point. Like I can't, I can't go on doing this anymore. It's like the medicine doesn't work anymore. And that was um, then my twenty-first birthday present to myself was to stop drinking. And then I went to, I left England in September, and then showed up at what what Pananachat in January. So then, not drinking was not a problem after that. <laughs> there isn't any around. But uh, uh, I've uh, it was a, a, at first it was just very natural. Everyone around me was doing that, but then I I could see that it was. Um, the 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 kind of use of it was just to numb the the feelings and how uh, the um, the the kind of heedlessness factor you know that the uh, you you're not aware of it at the time subjectively you feel you feel good you know you, you think you're saying all kinds of intra- intelligent and charming things um, and uh, but yet it's it's extremely deceptive you know that the the walls are coming. Uh, uh, are coming down the ju- you know, of judgment and self-reflection. They, they, they are, they're diminishing, and um, so now, at the very, very rare occasions when I'm a peop- when I'm around people who are drinking, sometimes like at uh, conferences or at the or at some sort of event, and people are having glasses of wine, it's astonishing to me how fast people sound really stupid. And when you're, when you're drinking, it seems like you're just having a good time and, and everything that you're saying and everyone around you is saying is really kind of interesting and bright and charming and delightful. But then when you're not drinking and people with you are, it's like, my goodness, she's just become really idiotic. You know, just a, a glass of wine later. So uh, that, uh, um, in terms of, of the maintaining the, the fifth precept and, and using it in a skillful way, uh, I would say that it's a great kindness to yourself, and it's a great kindness to the people around you, just to say oh, thanks. And say, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't drink alcohol, I, and that um, it can be seen as a, a loss or a lack, or uh, but uh, I feel it's also it's, it can be seen as a gift to yourself and to others. Like the, the other night, we were talking about the precepts of the five great gifts that. Uh, uh, it's a um, says having that as a standard for yourself and a standard for the that um, you you don't choose to find happiness through being more confused, but you're know, finding happiness in other ways. It's also really uh, much much easier for your kids. You know, if you have any children or you're guiding young people, that 
I say, well, how come it's all right for you, but it's not all right for me? It's like, well, you know, I don't. <laughs> to be able to say, well, I don't drink, is it's really uh, easy to give good guidance to younger people in that way. It's a greater discourse on the three sides. But I do speak from experience. You know, I have, I was uh, falling down drunk. Three, I was, I was. Fortunately, I was very poor. So <laughs> if I was, if I had more money, I would have been more drunk more often. But, uh, by the time I gave up drinking, I was I was sort of legless drunk about three or four nights a week when I was 20. So that's one of the reasons why I, my 21st birthday present for myself was to stop. But, uh, realizing it's, if I carry on like this, I'm not going to live to see 25. So I never do anything by halves. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to do it, you do it 120%. You know, like monastic life. But anyway, um, I see the time has wandered around to uh, after 11.25, so let's wind things up. Thank you for your good questions.